This podcast may contain explicit language and themes, so listener discretion is advised. Ill-advised, misinformed, our half-baked opinions will be performed. Are you ready? Is the mic on? Welcome to the Hill to Die On. You're listening to A Hill to Die On, a podcast hosted by two stubborn as shit Aussies who give hot takes on a different topic, go away to dig deeper, and then reconvene to share whether or not their hot take hill was worth dying on. We're your hosts, dreamers of electric sheep. Josie Spicer and Cara Brooks. This episode is the first in a mini-series that we're doing, and it's a bit of a different format to how we usually do it. But before we get into today's episode, we would like to welcome our newest Fanny Candida into the fold, (laughs) Ben. Thanks, Ben. You're now Fanny Candida. Thanks, Ben. So over the next four episodes, we'll be looking at different categories or, I guess, thematic sort of areas of reality television and asking, is this bracket of reality television helpful? So we'll do four separate episodes. The first three will be on our main feed and the last one will be Patreon exclusive, but we'll be going through different categories. So for the first week, we'll be asking, are justice-based reality shows helpful? And instead of just going away and looking at all justice-based reality shows, we decided to split it up between the two of us to sort of cover more ground more effectively. And because there's different branches of each of these categories really as well, um, Josie will be looking at uh, law enforcement-based justice shows, and I'll be looking at courtroom-based justice shows. Um, and seeing, yeah, how helpful they actually are. So I suppose uh, first off we'll ask, or I'll ask you, do you think, because you'll be covering law enforcement, do you think that law enforcement reality shows are helpful? Fuck no. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Cara? Do you think that they're helpful? Um, Law enforcement, hell no. Hell no. I mean, at times entertaining in a really fucked way. Like, where it's like watching a car yeah. wreck, like, where you know you shouldn't be enjoying it. Um, mm-hmm. Like, you're, like, rubbernecking at cops, basically. But, um, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's helpful to really anyone involved. Like, I don't see how it really could be. Um, but, yeah, what, what, what do you want to elaborate on your take on it? Because I'm curious to hear. <laughs> like, I know that you'll have a lot of opinions, so I'm, like, curious to hear about it. I do. I do have, I do have so many opinions. Uh, so society's view of crime and justice, media is very influential in that space. And law enforcement shows such as cops, border security, those sorts of shows, in my opinion, do nothing but uphold the status quo of justice so uphold empire and the way that empire wants you to think about crime and its prevalence as well as upholding ideas of social norms and viewing people who are supposedly committing these crimes as deviant people Mm -hmm. and therefore and i mean deviant in a negative way so they are are often these people are in a sociological sense deviant in that that they deviate yeah (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, a lot of these people are, you know, maybe houseless or are using drugs or are engaged in sex work. They won't explore why or how or or what impact that has. They're just showing these people who are 
deviants are interfacing with law enforcement and it is through the lens of law enforcement and not at all exploring the background of these people and even then like and this is even without considering the editing magic that that happens post-production there's before i continue i would recommend anyone to go and listen to the podcast running from cops does a far better job than i ever could do on this topic and it has to do with a uh, i think it's spokane washington about whether or not they want to have this law enforcement show in Spokane anymore. And and I think border security, again, I haven't done any reading on the impact of the show border security, but I think it, again, upholds, especially in Australia, upholds this idea of keeping nefarious actors out. And, and I'd be interested to see how many brown people are featured on these shows in terms of who we interview and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, And I think that these shows artificially inflate the public's perception of how common criminal activity is is sort of performed. Um, But that basically sums up my opinion. And who it's performed by. I think that's the other sort of like, there's so much like demonization of minorities in those type of shows. And I think like, there's also, especially with shows like Cops, and I suppose actually all of those shows, like you're following around a specific cop or law enforcement, you know, and you get the background of the law enforcement. They'll tell you a little about their lives, how long they've been a cop, mm-hmm. like that they're, they're built as the protagonist and you're taught to empathize with them or the show is leading you to empathize with them and it's their story. And then they're just trying to do their job and that, you know, they're just going about their day and this, this person like creating trouble for them when really, you, you know, shouldn't the empathy lie sometimes with the perpetrator or the alleged perpetrator? Like sometimes it's like, they're just going about their fucking day and this cop showed up. Like it could be a totally different show if the camera crews were following around the, you know, alleged criminals instead of the police. So yeah, I don't know. Absolutely. And there's even things. So like in this running from cops podcast specifically, I'm not sure about the Australian landscape, but in these shows, so first off, there's a fucking channel that has 24-hour cop shows. Gross. Like, just all day, every day, which is bonkers to me. But they encountered people who were absolutely framed by the cops on these shows to be able to produce a scene. Mm-hmm. Like, most of the time, they'll pull people over and there'll be nothing on them. And so there's been occasions where they find a pill or some white powder, but it turns out that the cops did that themselves yeah um and sometimes you'll see people flipping out as well like really acting aggressively towards these police officers but in this podcast again the person was saying hey yeah this cop was just driving past my house all day like for weeks Mm -hmm. and so i finally had enough it was like went off and then that's portrayed as this first time encounter yeah like stop harassing me yeah exactly so i i i hate i hate cop shows but i am willing to see whether or not there's been a a drop in crime since they've been around to see whether they've actually really helped society or you know i i i'm willing to be proven wrong and i'm also wanting to provide some evidence to back up my own opinion uh if it's there which i'm i'm pretty confident it is um (laughs) I could talk for ages about that, but I'll ask you, Kara, do you feel like courtroom justice reality TV shows are helpful? They're helpful in entertaining me. 
Um, but beyond that, absolutely not. Um, like, I fucking love Judge Judy. I think she's hilarious. But do I think that she's uh, helpful to the people within her courtroom? Rarely. Um, do I think that they are real cases? Uh, <laughs> I have my doubts. Like, you know, it's like you have to part of me wonders just on the ethics and legality of that as well. It's like she is a legal judge. Right. So it's like everything that she's doing, if it is a real courtroom, has to be legal. So it's like, are they fake? Like, are people committing purgatory by telling lies within the courtroom? Or is it well known that it's an act? Like, I haven't really looked into it and I haven't watched Judge Judy for a long time. So I'm not really entirely sure how it all works. I know that she's like, I think last time I read she was the fucking richest woman in America. So, yeah, like, like she makes yeah. fucking bank. Yeah, but um, I, don't, I think it's helpful to her and her bank account. Um, <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's helpful to many others. And same as like, you know, there's other shows in a similar vein, like Judge Joe Brown, I think was another one. Divorce Court, I think was one. Yeah, yeah. I've never watched it, but. I'm sure I did back in the day. <laughs> like I used to watch a lot of shitty, um, <laughs> you know, daytime TV when I was in high school. Thank you, Glandula Fever. <laughs> but I don't really know, like, um, yeah, who it, who it would be helpful to. And I, it makes me question, like, I mean, I suppose the people that go on there get actors' wages. I don't know why else you would air your dirty laundry in such a public forum. Um, so I think I know the answer to that question. Mm. You will have to obviously check up on this, and this may either never have been true or no longer be true. But from my understanding, there's a certain amount that you can win from a case in this court. Because it's civil court, right? Not like criminal court. Yeah, so. yeah. So I think there's like an, a, maxim- a maximum amount you can sue for damages and you can win the whole amount and then the other person gets nothing. You can win part of it and then the other person gets like the remainder of that money, I think. I think it was like you're technically paying both in a way if it comes to that or no one gets anything. I think that's... I think that's Wait, how it worked how, how do you mean so i don't i she is a judge but i'm pretty sure it doesn't operate like i don't think it's actually a courtroom so the way that they settle it is is outside of the sphere of justice i think mm. um so say i'm suing you for five grand mm-hmm. If I'm successful, I get five grand, you get nothing. If I'm kind of successful, but only for like a certain amount, I might get two grand and you get three grand. Um, oh, it's almost like a game show. Like I the think, prize money so. is like what you're suing for. And then whoever loses gets, yeah. so it is like you're competing, like, cause you're representing yourself. So you really are competing for that money based on trying to prove. Yeah. You your... Oh shit. Yeah. You're right. Wow. That's wild. Fuck. I didn't thought of it that way um and it's kind of like yeah fuck you're so right because it's like if again if this is true um it's sort of like how whoever can best put forward a case that is convincing to judge judy yeah and and she has her own biases it's like getting a play lawyer like yes yeah with real people like people's lives i think and then i think if the case is dismissed then i think no one gets anything yeah so but Mm. yeah you might want to fact check me on that one i wonder how divorce court works in that (laughs) oh no oh no (sighs) oh well i guess it's oh did i ever tell you of um my actual experience in family court the one time I had to go no um (laughs) so when I got divorced in the states I had to sit through family court and 
I went there with Paul, my ex, and we basically like we hadn't seen each other in ages by the time we got divorced because I think we separated after 11 months of marriage and then we put off getting divorced for uh, like a year and a half Mm -hmm. or something. Um, And we'd only seen each other a couple times in that time. Um, and had you know minimal communication we're friends now I'm actually doing a podcast with him in a week or so that's awesome yeah but um that day so he was living in Chicago and I was living in um Champaign-Urbana and he'd driven down like we'd booked the court date it was all like you know this is a day that works for us it was just before I was moving back to Australia so we figured like you know get it out of the way before I leave the country during the courtroom we were the last couple that were called up and so it was entirely divorce court um for that, that afternoon And so we had to sit through everyone else's cases, uh, which pros and cons, because once your case is heard, you get to leave. Yes. So it's like our case didn't go in front of anyone, but you know, we we also had to sit through everyone else's, which for the most part was pretty fucking dull. But I will say there was one fucking case where this guy is on the stand and he was telling his story. He had a lawyer. So as soon as we were like, oh fuck, there's lawyers involved. Like this is pretty serious. And he had him on the stand and the lawyer was questioning him. And he said um, he was a postal worker and he had been with his wife since they were in high school, I think since they were 17. And they'd been dating for a few months um, and then he'd gotten her pregnant. And the lawyer asked him, so when you found out that she was pregnant, uh, what did you decide to do? And he said, uh, I decided to get married. I proposed to her because I thought that was the right thing to do. Um, and then he was like, you know, what mm-hmm. happened next? And he's explaining like um, he was accepted into college, but he couldn't go to college because he had to support his family, like his wife and new child. Uh-huh. And so he had not gone to college and he'd gotten a job with the postal service and had been working as a postman for like now for three or four four years and then it got to a point where he's like okay so after you had been working um I don't remember what the reason was exactly I I think it's like he suspected his wife of infidelity or something and so he was like after this time what did you decide to do like after the after your child's fourth birthday or something and he was like um I decided to get a paternity test (laughs) and the lawyer was like and what were the results of that test and he goes I was not the father oh my god I literally like Paul and I yeah Paul and I were sitting up the back of the courtroom and I literally just went like <gasps> and like slap my thighs and turn to him like open mouthed and Paul was just like clenching his fists on his legs shaking like staring straight ahead while I'm just staring at him like oh can you believe this shit you know and afterwards he was like fuck you like I knew the face you were making and I couldn't look at you because I was gonna burst out laughing <laughs> I know the shit that but he's it was doing legit. Yeah, yeah. It was legit like fucking Mori Povich, like you are not the father. Oh and my like, God. oh fuck. I was like devastated for this dude. Like, could you imagine you've like raised this child, you've put off your own life, you've not gone to college, you've been working this shitty job to support this woman and this child, and then you and find out it's not child. even fucking yours. And you love it because you've believed it's yours and then you actually have no fucking right to that child as well <sighs> because it's not custod you know, in a, in a custodial Jesus. sense, it's not your child. Like fucking hell even though I'm pretty sure he would have been on the birth certificate but yeah still it's like oh it was such a mess and we were just like fuck so things like that I'm I'm sure there's plenty of crazy shit and that's just one day like that's the only time I've ever been to family court and it was something and there were there was another case as well that I don't remember but I remember there were a couple that were pretty fucking juicy and I was like (laughs) like I can only imagine you know if this is just a regular day 
What yeah. other shit's going down? Like? Uh, I think there's a lot of... So, my friends who are lawyers, you know, I ask them, like, are there any memorable ones? And they're like, most days, like, there is, there's something you're like, I swear I'm going to remember this. But then you won't because there's so many. Yeah. It has to be mm. spectacular to remember. Yeah. But, yeah. And I, that's the thing. Like, I'm sure that was, like, fucking run of the mill. I only remember it because it was just shocking because I've never seen anything like that in person. Like, no way. And I think that's yeah. why a lot of people watch these things is because it's so foreign to their experience that, yeah, you try and get insight. And I I think that's what's unfair. And there's also, like, safety in that. There's, like, safety and there's othering because you think, like, well, you know, if you might be watching Divorce Court and you're either, like, single or married and you're like, well, Phew. my relationship is safe so I can watch this, you know, from an outside perspective mm-hmm. and not feel threatened by it in any way. Or same with cops. Like, I bet I would love to see statistics of people who actually watch and enjoy cops because white I people. guarantee it's fucking like 99% white middle class, like people yeah. that do not feel threatened by cops, therefore feel like they can enjoy that because they're not the victims of the brutality exactly. that all those people are experiencing. <laughs> Be very interesting. Like, who is it actually helpful to? It, and I think I agree with you 100%. It's fucking just perpetuating the status quo of you know what we believe and when i say we i mean you know shitty white culture shitty white middle class bullshit culture believes that justice should be or like this is what justice looks like this is what law enforcement should do this is what courtrooms should be enforcing you know enforcing and then punishing or rewarding Mm -hmm. i guess on either side yeah, no, um, you're quite right. It's like, well, there's a clear good and bad, or you're both as bad as each other, or mm-hmm. and you're still only getting a glimpse and an edited glimpse. For sure. And most of the entertainment I think we get out of it is that guilty kind of entertainment where you're like, oh, I shouldn't be laughing at this, but it's things that are like completely bizarre or so removed from your own reality or your own way of dealing with things that it can become entertaining. And that in itself is problematic. <laughs> like I, I still believe we're correct in saying that to an extent, but I'm just thinking, and this is, again, this is anecdotal, and so I'd be really interested to find this out, but there was a six-month period where I was living with my dad when I was 18, and every night we'd sit down and watch cops together. My dad is very familiar with the brutality of police officers, mm-hmm. and yet he just kept watching it. I bring that up because that goes against what we just sort of proposed but also I'm thinking about my relationship to true crime media and while I am very picky about true crime media because of my lived experience I still probably consume a lot more than I did before like well I mean I didn't really consume any before Haley was murdered you were also young enough that it's like that can be sort of excused to that as well like written up to that as well yeah I guess what I'm trying to say is sometimes it can feel comforting to see or hear experiences similar to yours, even if they're not in a lot of ways. And I don't, I'm not saying that that's what my dad felt when he watched Cops, because it's still, he's still getting this opposite lens. Like he's still getting the lens of the cops. Mm. But I, I just wonder if there is something in that. Yeah, like I would be curious as to who he was empathizing with. Mm, yeah. Like, is he watching it thinking like, I know what that's like, fuck those cops. Or is it like, yeah, hmm, yeah that criminal shit you know what I mean like I wish I had asked him I think mostly we both were like yeah he's on the gear like my dad in 
a large part myself, we're both pretty good at spotting people who are on drugs. So I think we're like, yeah, they're off their rocket. Like, <laughs> I still think that even if some people are watching it because it is close to their experience, I still don't find it helpful. Like, I've, I don't find true crime stuff helpful, even even if I have lived experience with it. So yeah, right. yeah my heel's still the same at the moment, even with that outlying example. We'll go away. I'll tackle... Uh, law enforcement and you tackle courtroom and we'll see where we're at and kind of the idea that we had is that um, we'll see if we stick to our hills uh, as usual but also we thought of doing like a little bracket thing with each of these episodes and so we'll decide which one we think for the purposes of the bracket we should do like the most like the worst one like the the least helpful I think we should do both so oh. what is the most helpful and what is the least helpful? Because there'll be an answer for each episode. Yeah, so yeah, we just yeah. like pair them against each other. So we'll, we'll end up having a best and a worst. Yeah. And, and we're thinking as well of having a, uh, a, a bracket that our listeners can vote on after each episode. So we'll have our own vote. And uh, also our listeners can vote on what they think is the best and the worst out of each episode. This episode will be obviously law enforcement. Um, the next episode will be property-based reality shows. So Josie will be looking at property like renovations and makeovers, and I'll be looking at property buying and scouting for locations of property. The one after that, we will be doing health-based reality shows where Josie will be looking at dieting shows and I'll be looking at medical shows. And then for our Patreon special, we'll be looking at mental health-based shows. Josie will be looking at addiction and recovery-based reality shows and I'll be looking at like hoarding and I favorite show. mental illness-based shows like uh, that. Hoarding is the fucking best, man. I, I love the uh, show Hoarders and I don't mean to. It's the same It's the same guilt I have with the whole true crime thing. Oh yeah, it's the campness and the low-browness and just everything, like you're enjoying someone else's illness which is fucked but like I'm fucked so sorry it's so fucked I'm not up. sorry <laughs> I was gonna say a lot of I think you know that we haven't really covered is that it makes you feel better about your own life and that's oh, something yeah. that I think a lot of these shows like you know with hoarding you know I could look at my living room and be like oh this is a cluttered mess and then I watch hoarders and I'm like I am fucking immaculate yes like holy shit I have never yeah. yeah like I can see my carpet to know there's a couple of bits of lint on it you know like mm -hmm. and that's what's making me feel grubby and then I realize like holy shit like the other half man like you never realize how because we don't really see that often how people live um unless we're friends with them and even then it's like a filtered view of mm -hmm. what you know people clean their house before you come over or you, you know statistically a lot of your friends probably don't have illnesses like disorders like hoarding and things so yeah it's just I probably wouldn't invite you over exactly and just seeing how extreme it can become is like fuck I didn't even know yeah. like and I think that's what reality television whether or not it's factual uh, exposes us to how different <laughs> people live or the experiences of people with you know lives and mental states vastly different than our own yeah but sometimes maybe like vastly similar so I wonder if it's like how helpful like, I don't know, if you saw someone on television that had the same disorders or thought processes or neurological issues that you might have, would you feel better or worse for that? And I think it's all to do with how they're presented. Yes, I you know, agree. If they're presented through a light of like, we, you know, where you're supposed to empathize with them, it would feel good, like you feel represented and seen. But if they're demonized, it feels fucking awful, I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't think I've been on the demonized part too often, so... Yeah. It's a privilege that comes with that. 
but yeah all right i'll see you in the next half yeah cool So, first up, I want to make it clear that I am anti-cop in the first place, <laughs> in case in case no one knew, and despite my best intentions, that bias is still going to show here. I tried, but it's going to come through. So, I did, in earnest, try to find evidence of reality policing shows improving any sort of outcome uh, in society, but to get it out of the way, there wasn't any. Colour me shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I- I'm sorry if you were expecting anything different. It's not here. Yes, yeah, so I couldn't find any evidence, at least not peer-reviewed evidence. So what I did find was people within the police force like have stated that policing reality shows have resulted in an increase of police recruitment. Oh. And in the instance of New Zealand, people calling in with information, like snitching. Wow. So, you know, if those are to be believed, then those two outcomes, depending on your own ideology, could be seen as negative or positive. What What would you say to those two outcomes, just off the bat? I'd say it's people getting into police work for the wrong reasons and a bunch of snitches getting stitches. <laughs> um, I don't think either of those seem like positive things. There's definitely a see something, say something sort of thing, but also if you're snitching because of that, yes, then that's also for the wrong fucking reasons. So, yeah. yeah. I don't think it should have any impact, really, it, other than crime prevention would be maybe the one thing you would want to come out of it because people would be too embarrassed to have their sort of humility aired like that, but instead they see it as a fucking like narcissistic promotional opportunity or something. Like, I started off by watching a few episodes of the show on Netflix called Under Arrest, and I just made four observations. So I couldn't watch too many episodes because it made me so mad. So the first observation I made, and this was before I did any reading, first off was the aggression and constant threats Mm. made by police officers to arrest people for simply being upset, wanting the camera to go away, and questioning the actions of the police. I can't in good faith tell people to watch these episodes, but if you did happen to watch them, I think even someone who wasn't critical of policing would notice this. There were victims of an alleged assault who were being threatened with arrest because they had their voices raised in panic. People who, like, quite literally saved the life of a man by stopping him from dying by suicide were pushed onto the ground with their hands in cuffs behind their backs before the police even understood what was going on and what was happening at the scene. What the fuck? I- I'll bring this up now. So since since even writing this, I have, like, watched some videos of some other police encounters just online and having a cop kind of critically break down what's going on. And even though this doesn't make it right, mm. apparently if they're being called to something that's considered a high-risk environment, they are allowed to kind of apprehend people to sort of mitigate harm coming to them and to other people. But I guess it's like just because you're allowed doesn't mean you should. Like use your best fucking judgment, you know. Absolutely. And and that's something that like this cop even said was like if you're doing that, you should speak in a calm voice, speak quietly, explain what's going on. So even though it's technically legal, the best practice isn't being followed there. So that was the mm-hmm. first observation. The second one, the lies told by officers to both the camera and the civilians they were dealing with, despite the camera 
recording the thing that they were lying about. So as I'll get into later, there's the caveat that policing reality shows are heavily edited, so I'm willing to give grace in some instances, but there were others who were like flat out lying about chasing down suspects. For instance, in this one scene in one of the episodes, an officer who sprinted around the corner of a building to find a man who was reported having a knife, when he saw this sprinting armed police officer yelling at him, he freaked the fuck out and like seemed to ditch the knife, which is like honestly a rational response in that moment, I would say. But when the officer questioned why he did that, if he wasn't doing anything illegal, he said he saw her and he freaked out. Then she said something to the effect of, why would an officer just walking around the corner scare you? As if we did not see her sprinting and yelling and like being fucking intense. Like she kind of gaslit him and gaslit like the viewers. It was bizarre. Or they just don't even like, they're so not self-aware that they're not even understanding how they're coming across or... I mean, that's the only alternative, right? To, like, lying about it. No, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, that honestly, again, this is my bias coming through, right? Is that I hadn't even considered that they may not have (laughs) understood what they're doing, but that's very possible. And I think that's probably more likely. But it's also, like, a bad excuse because, I mean, if you're a fucking cop and you're armed, you should be very fucking self-aware. Totally. You know, how you're carrying yourself and how you're coming across to the people you're supposed to be protecting or if you're in forcing a fucking law you should at least be professional and you're serving the public like and it's like kind of getting back to our conversation before about okay that might be legal to do where's the de-escalation there if this guy was holding a knife which he was why would you want to startle him while he's holding a knife Mm. and worst case scenario he's unhinged so number three in the episodes i watched there were two instances of officers being critical of policing in both of these instances these men read as a lot younger than their colleagues and both of them appeared to be non-white and i don't think that's a coincidence they both mentioned how a lot of what they deal with is simply the end product of underlying societal issues and it made me wonder how propaganda may influence people to join the force only to then reveal to those who work within it that it's deeply flawed, like it's a deeply flawed model. And it kind of reminded me also that there are good people who want to do good and they think that joining the force is how you do good and serve your community, despite many cops not even policing their communities. And like this is not to absolve any one of their actions or for them staying in a, a structure that's racist like their ultimate decision to work within a system that upholds white supremacy and colonialism still doesn't get a pass but it certainly reminded me of how policing is sold as the way to help communities and like there are kind of limited options outside of it like when we talk about funding like cops is so well funded was this program american yes yes okay yeah i mean that's a huge thing as well i think that a lot of people don't acknowledge is that it's it's one of the few jobs that pays well enough like compared to other american jobs it pays really fucking well and you don't need a four-year degree. You, they want just like a decent job to support their family or to support themselves or for whatever reason. So if you think that if you've been fed rhetoric that makes you think it's the right decision or like that it's not an, an evil institution, it kind of makes sense that people do it. Like I don't begrudge people for doing it. I begrudge people for staying in it when they realize it's fucked. <laughs> so the fourth and final observation I made while watching those like two or three episodes was mental illness is comedy. So all aspects of this show made me angry, but the thing I had to literally like fast forward through was 
approximately five minutes of footage of a homeless, heroin-addicted person singing a song. The rest of this scene was dealt with better than others. Like, this was one where an officer noted that locking this guy up only kept him fed and warm for one night, and they treated him with patience and relative dignity, so I was quite impressed with that, honestly. That was until this decision for, I guess, the editors to keep in the five minutes of him singing. Like, I know it sounds harmless, but it's ultimately using addiction and, like, marginalization and illness as humor and, like, public humiliation. There's no way this dude would have remembered any of that evening, and yet here I am years later after the fact watching it on TV halfway around the world and with the creators of the show clearly wanting me to laugh or find it amusing, and it just really made me feel really sick. It also makes you think, like, how can someone in that state give consent for their image and voice and everything to be used? You know what I mean? Like, Very fucking interesting question. How could he give informed consent about being on that show? But yeah, so that was the viewing element of my so-called research. So now onto the literature. So I also read a few peer-reviewed journal articles. The first one was a 2011 article by Mark Andrejevic. There's a body of literature on what can be called secure attainment. So forms of pop culture that use entertainment as a way to instruct us how to manage terror risks. So in this 2011 paper, it kind of put forward that shows such as border security are an extension of neoliberal outsourcing to the private sector. So when I had posted on Twitter that I was like looking into these types of shows, people kept replying with, look into border security, look into border security. And I was like, oh yeah, I wasn't expecting that much, but there's been heaps published since like 2003 about it. Shows such as border security are made by private entities, but serve to frame messaging that is in line with state goals, ultimately placed on a platter and labelled entertainment. This paper is worth reading if you're interested in this sort of thing, um, I'll have it in the show notes, but the author does a good job arguing that secure attainment is part of what may be described as commercial nationalism. Mm. He argues that there are three common themes within secure attainment shows that kind of feel very haunting to me. The first theme, grouping a broad array of risks together, mobilizing the anxieties of the time. For instance, you'll find that they kind of put not just terrorism as a risk, but immigration and biosecurity as a risk kind of all together. And like they're all weighed the same and they all have the same chance of being come upon at any time. So that's the first theme. The second theme is the management of these risks by the professionals. So the people on the screen in their jobs, they're managing the anxiety and conveying the idea that there is a need for public cooperation and education. So this is like encouraging snitching on the show. And then third is forms of participatory identification that help frame potential risk and the public contribution to their management. And this is like always according to the priorities of law enforcement and the state. So secure attainment uses the specter of terrorism throughout these shows to not only engage audiences, but to ask them to participate in being vigilant against these purported risks. When we think of terrorism, like that doesn't sound bad from the outset. Like if you see something, say something in terms of like bags at the terminal and stuff like that, you may think they're teaching us to look out for suspicious packages at airports. But in reality, these shows mostly show us biosecurity and immigration issues. In fact, we know from other shows that it's kind of in the contract that any actual terror related incident would not reach final 
like it would not be aired right because that's an investigation issue but there's this like looming that terror is going to happen at any moment so while biosecurity is certainly worth talking about and educating the public about it folds it into the umbrella of national security and this is also used with immigration immigration is seen as a national security issue and one that is just tied to terrorism or so the state says so to have viewers of securitainment see biosecurity immigration and terrorism portrayed as though they all have equal risk to the nation is problematic well i think like most of the time the bio risks are being carried out by immigrants as well in the footage that they show so it's kind of like yeah oh yeah all the fucking time they show that right like oh look at this asian family with these crazy vegetables or like you know it's like dude come on do you have to be really like scared of every fucking culture (laughs) what kind of xenophobia are you breeding (laughs) yeah in so many of them it's like the real issue is that they're bringing like too much of one item over it. Yeah, or it's like it's not actually illegal. They just didn't declare it. You know, like there's some weird shit. Like you should have just said that you had it, and now you're sneaking it. So what's wrong, you sneaky person? Like, oh fuck off. Yes, the sneaky outsider, right? So to encourage viewers to participate in national security risk assessment is dangerous. I mean, like, it kind of harbour general acceptance for offshore processing of people seeking asylum, for instance. It could promote xenophobia in the wider community. It could make people suspicious of food sold at Asian and Middle Eastern groceries. Uh, It could serve to other non-white people and people who aren't Australian born. I don't know if we've seen any of that uh, in reality, so this is all speculation on my part, of course. But these shows just promote the state line of what we need to be fearing and also just as an aside biosecurity is something that's very important and i'm not gonna deny that but i want to note and i'll I'll link in the show notes to the abc four corners investigation into white spot disease which is a virus that affects prawns and it made its way into australian waters because customs officials took bribes to let the prawns with white spot into the country to be sold at supermarkets it's these officials, these these usually white professionals, who were the ones that accepted bribes. And it's not like the prawns with white spot were being sold at like corner stalls. They're being sold at Coles and Woolies. Border security does not show the reality of these issues. Production decisions in what to air and what to edit out and the way that it is edited elicit identification with the cops. These shows influence how would-be police imagine the job. Some even see the program as training to them. That's so bleak. Right? So it shows the authorised definition of events, which is to say that what you see is the interpretation of events as reported by law enforcement and other powerful actors. So the next thing I read was a person's master's thesis submitted in 2012 called Real Cops Exploring the Representation of Policing on Police 10-7, which is a New Zealand policing show. The main findings were that while some aspects of policing and offending were depicted reasonably accurately, in, in, in the realms of gender and ethnicity of who was encountered, some of those aspects were skewed. Police 107 consistently misrepresented the types of offences most commonly committed in New Zealand, overrepresented traditional street crime, such as drug and antisocial offending, but ignored completely common offences such as dishonesty crimes and domestic violence. The author found that white individuals depicted in Police 107 are much more likely to be police than offenders, while the opposite is true for non-white individuals. 
who are also depicted more commonly as being involved in violent offending than their white counterparts. Not a shock to anyone. The author also found that the show, over the course of a year, significantly misrepresented the work undertaken by a typical police officer, overemphasizing the exciting and action-packed aspects, because you're not going to fucking film the paperwork stuff, right? Like, that's boring. I would also be curious to know, like, okay, let's say in the show... Um, there's, you know, a percentage of non-white people and white people who are offenders, right? And that doesn't match the statistics of those who mm-hmm. are arrested in real life or who are confronted in real life for the same things. Mm-hmm. That also doesn't reflect the real perpetrators of these, you know what I mean? Like, who the police confront is also biased. So it's like a biases of a biases. Like, it's not Yes, even... yes. No, you're so right. Because it's like, there still has to be that level of discretion yeah. for the cops to even choose to approach anyone. So... You're right. It's already it's already narrowed before you even have the camera there. Yeah, so you think of how narrow that statistic is if it doesn't even match the fucking police statistics. Like, yeah. fuck. I brought that up because I had found some sort of like media articles about that same show. More than 520 episodes have featured in the series so far of Police 107. And each program has resulted in at least one arrest, says the producer. However, she adds... The show's success depends on the viewers and their willingness to come forward with information, even if it implicates their friends or family. Now, that's one of the fucking themes that Old Mate before brought up, was that they encourage snitching on these shows, and she's just blatantly said it. People have apparently turned themselves in, turned their friends in, the community has worked out who people are from CCTV. And she was saying this as a point of pride, right? (laughs) But next to it, I just wrote, huh? Why are police necessary? Okay, people are turning themselves in, people have turned in their friends, and the community are figuring out who the perpetrator is. Yeah, because they don't want to live in a community with someone doing these crimes. (laughs) Yeah, and it's like, okay, so the police are just there to manhandle and throw them into fucking prison. Is that all? Yes. (laughs) People say, oh, cops are out there solving crimes. It's like, well, fucking clearly not. Yeah, it's like, I still, I think like detectives are out there solving crimes they happen to be cops but beat cops it's like come on dude are they really ever out there solving crimes they're trying to catch people in the act Mm -hmm. they're often like yeah the authors of this particular article were kind of just like noticing the way in which border security is filmed so the camera work and stuff like that they made the observation that the crew zooms right in on passengers faces nervous faces because of course and zoom in on travelers with criminal records tattoos piercings and other physical stuff that's kind of already stigmatized a bit. They also noted again that border security has the implicit message that given the magnitude and ubiquity of external threats, individuals must not only act responsibly but actively aid the state in surveillance and detection. So participates in sculpting what others have called insecurity subjects and watchful citizens. So again, snitches. This sentence kind of hit me a bit. They said, in the short term, border security may promote an insular and superficial sense of solidarity. In the long term, it may corrode communal bonds and undermine commitments to justice and recognition in societies that are increasingly mobile, pluralistic, and transnational. And it's like, this paper was written in 2015. I know that doesn't sound that long ago. That That is what's happening. It's communities increasingly corroding and we're always othering. Something I didn't realize was that cops ended last June in the aftermath of George Floyd's death. 
the series was pulled from the schedule and subsequently cancelled, and Live PD was also cancelled by A&E. However, they have recently sneakily began recording again. They were just waiting for the whole racism issue to blow over, that, that old chestnut. I also didn't realise how old Cops was, so... Cops premiered on Fox in 1989. Yeah, that's not surprising to me. Ah, see, I had no idea. So, like, the textbook on this type of show was written, like, when I was born. Yeah, it's because it's in syndication, so you can see, like, all the real old episodes. Like, a lot of the ones I used to watch when I was younger were from the early 90s. Like, even when I was watching it in the late 90s were from the early 90s, so... An article written only a few weeks ago was that two former Texas sheriff's deputies uh, were facing manslaughter charges in the death of a black man who was tased following a car chase which was being filmed for TV. Basically, they kind of exacerbated things for the thrill of the show. I mean, you could argue that, right? Or you could just argue that they're fucking like this anyway. Either way, it doesn't cut well. The man who was a, a postal worker died after the deputies tased him several times as he begged, I can't breathe. He had congestive heart failure and the lawsuit filed by the family alleged that the now former sheriff encouraged deputies to be entertaining while filming live PD. In a statement, attorneys for the former deputies said that the cops were neither morally nor legally responsible for his death. What? You Okay, you could say legally, right? Like, that is its own thing. Whether I like it or not, they could be found guilty or not guilty, but to say that they're not morally responsible yeah. for this person's death? Excuse me? Right. How fucking dare? Who made you judge Judy and Executioner? <laughs> Did you just say judge Judy and Executioner? Yeah, it's fucking my hot fire. <laughs> oh, I've never watched that. So then I got into another article. Police 107 host chimed in. So there was a whole like discourse happening on Twitter, as there usually is, and the host of Police 107, in response to allegations of racism on the show, he chimed in to say, It's very difficult not to develop a slight attitude to a group of people that are constantly offending. What? What cops? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> no, he, he definitely means brown people. The last thing I want to do, this is from an old article. It's from 1998. But as I was saying before, like the textbook on this was written back then. Oh, a lot of cultural theories are like still completely relevant. Like I think that's a huge difference with arts versus science. Yes. It's like, yeah, there's some things that get disputed, but a lot of it just stays relevant. Like there's no real and they like people still quote fucking Sigmund Freud you know like it's not yeah it's like it, and you can like expand on it and all that sort of stuff but it all derives from like this work that's already come before you right there's something I'm adjusting to maybe you're kind of in the opposite thing now I'm doing the reverse right yeah now, yeah, yeah. check dates of things yes exactly whereas like especially when I was doing IT it has to be so recent otherwise it may as well not exist at all yeah like it could be from last year and it's like ah oh, but is there is there changes like <laughs> Entertaining Crime, Television Reality Programs, first edition was the textbook. So television reality crime programs have flourished in part because of the social context. To put this another way, crime policy, ideological notions about crime, and television crime shows are interrelated. They occur within a particular social context. So then in the 60s, rehabilitation in the US was actually a big push. Something I find endlessly fascinating to think about. But the reason that it might not be as well known outside of the US. 
the fact that there was a huge push for rehabilitation and a lot of research being done on rehabilitation is because the reality crime programs only came out once kind of the 70s and 80s where war on crime and war on drugs began right so it's like these scary things that are worth filming and worth pushing the state narrative of it was only in specifically the 80s that kind of see this this social context of fear and like the other and like fighting blatant racism in policy but you're also seeing it then enacted on screen in the way that the policing is done and then that's being exported overseas and all that sort of thing yeah and i think it like you know rehabilitation you would think would be sort of a community engaging like it's something that benefits a community whereas something like cops or where you're trying to portray criminals and the detainment etc of criminals um when you're putting it in such a binary like this is good this is bad this is your protagonist this is your antagonist and you're positioning a viewer in such a way that they have to make a decision Mm -hmm. as to who they're supporting because it is a narrative like they are telling a story a very short, a very filtered, a very inaccurate story, but a story nonetheless. Yes. You know, it's, it's making it really difficult, whereas with traditional, not traditional, but with views like rehabilitation, you're not othering them, you're not saying, like, this is a bad person, they go away now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, no, this is someone who needs help, let's help them figure it out, and they can return to their community. <laughs> and I totally agree with everything you've said, but it'll be interesting for me to then go in the fourth installment of this reality series to go and watch the the intervention shows and stuff. Because they're not that helpful either, I'm feeling better. <laughs> I wonder how true to rehabilitation theory these shows have, have sort of stuck. I think, like, reality television is never reality. Yes. It's television. I mean, I actually have thought about, like, in regards to filming cops, I wonder how much impact that has on police not altering their behaviour while they're being filmed with phones. Oh. Um, because they're used huh. to the idea that their inappropriate behaviour is televised, um, and so it doesn't really deter them anymore in a way it might have if we didn't have televised police brutality basically well yeah i mean i i don't know if it's been measured but i'm I'm just thinking if you see that there's been no repercussions for it normalizes it it normalized fucked behavior to a point where society just sort of accepted it and it has to be something really outrageous Mm -hmm. for people to sort of bat an eyelid Mm -hmm. and then even when it is outrageous they're like oh well I've seen fuck shit happen. Like, this isn't that much worse than what they're doing. You know, like, it's really easy to just fucking draw lines in the sand, isn't it? So to kind of end, the question is, like, are these shows helpful? And they're not. There might be a few positives for reality crime programs in terms of police recruiting. They're not showing reality. They're not showing people acting with integrity. And that's just with the cops, not to mention the editors who were choosing the juiciest bits, the most humiliating bits. I thought I already hated reality shows so much, but I think the added layer of the secure attainment, so like the border force thing, has just like really fucked me up. I did not realize that propaganda was just blatantly aired. Kara, would you like to tell me about the court things? I am very excited to hear what you have. I didn't even know what to call these. I was like, law-based reality. I found the actual name of what they're called. So they're called arbitration-based reality shows. Ooh, I like that name. It sounds so fancy. Arbitration is the name. I've already fucked Arbitration, up. right. There's actually a surprising amount of these shows. Like, so I knew Judge Judy, Judge Joe Brown, right? Like, they were the sort of two ones that mm-hmm. immediately sprung to mind. 
People's Court is actually the first, like the longest running one. So that's been around and still going, um, but been around since 1981. Oh. They changed the judges. I think that's why it's less famous and they're also less sassy. Um, <laughs> just a bit more reasonable. Um, oh. There's also a British one called Judge Rinder. Judge Rinder. A blonde man who's pretty sassy, but a lot more, um, a lot more mild. To get, you know, into this sort of mode of research before I started reading about it, I watched a few of them. <laughs> so I'll start with Judge Rinder, because I'd never seen it before. I'll, I'll give you just the rundown of what was on the shows, alright? Like, the, the stories that were covered. Oh, God. I did watch some Judge Judy, but I don't remember the, the plot lines. They were just sort of all over the place, and most of it was just her doing fucking straight singers and dumb cases, and, you know, it's... It's not memorable, but it's entertaining. Um, I actually remember saying a while ago, I don't know if I said this during our last recording or who I said this to, but I was like, Judge Judy is a type of show where you can watch every episode and I would not be able to tell you what any of them were about. Like, I could not even relay one case. 100%. But with the others, I made notes. So... There was one in Judge Rinder where it was a tenant against a landlord, which I know we fucking love those. Basically, sewage had come up through his kitchen sink. <laughs> and the landlord tried to fucking say that it was his fault. He didn't care enough. Like, he, he was neglecting the pipes in the apartment. I didn't know you could fucking neglect your pipes in that, in that way. You know, that's like his responsibility. I thought you were going to say he, like, accused him of just doing real yeah. big shits. <laughs> like... He's neglecting his other pipes. <laughs> But she came in with no fucking evidence and basically had hinged her case on the fact that he was formerly homeless. Excuse me? Yep. And so she was like, well, he's just like that. Like, he's filthy, basically. Oh. Like, that was the vibe that you're getting. And it was just like, fucking what, bitch? And so luckily, the plaintiff won the case. Um, but she was trying to counter so and it was just like, get fucked. Uh, he had photos and everything, and it was fucked. And the judge was, like, clearly trying not to vomit on looking at them. Oh, my God. <laughs> the other case was, like, a fucking social media thing where they had an agreement, like, between uh, an influencer and an oatcakes business. Like, it was just so fucking British and bizarre. Anyway, <laughs> it was pretty bland. Like, it was... <laughs> yeah, overall, yeah, five out of ten. Like, it was... Yeah. Judge Joe Brown was different, like totally different vibe. He's sassy in a different way to Judge Judy. He had two cases that I watched. The second one was two guys that had been friends since childhood. It seemed very sage to me. Like one was like very good looking and went to college, like was in his third year of his degree or something and was uh, working as well as studying and was very responsible, very well dressed, you know. And his mate was wearing a lot of chains and you know ill-fitting clothing and was oh okay had not been to college and was the bad influence friend you know and he apparently had been in this friend's apartment with another friend they were all drinking the less reputable one had decided to pour out his drink onto the plaintiff's floor for you know a fallen homie or whatever he said it was as you do and basically they got in a fight over it and the defendant punched plaintiff in the face breaking his jaw it didn't look like his jaw had ever been broken but i suppose it was a long time before like when it had happened so he was seeking like medical payment claims like for the treatment fair enough and one another so i watched people's court this one was a bit more fucked it was an alleged car accident or it was a car accident but who who was responsible for the accident was up for debate basically one car was like young people the other car was like a middle-aged dude 
the young people lost, right? Like, they just didn't have evidence, I guess, whatever, on their side. Right. But they had accused him of throwing a bottle of alcohol out of his car, like, as he was driving. And, yeah, and then it turned out he was actually an AA, and he was like, I haven't drank in, like, five years or something. So I was like, that's so offensive. That's so hurtful, yeah. Yeah, so if untrue, which I suspect it was, um, super inappropriate. That's the sort of caliber of stuff that you get on those sort of shows. So I went into this under the impression that I was like, well, it's not criminal court, it's just like civil court or whatever. It's different again. So arbitration, when I started seeing that word pop up, I was like, what actually is that? Like, how is this different to civil court? I got this from the American Bar Association, like an explanation of it, which is the arbitration process is similar to a trial in that the parties make opening statements and present evidence to the arbitrator. Compared to traditional trials, arbitration can usually be completed more quickly and is less formal. For example, often the parties do not have to follow state or federal rules of evidence, and in some cases the arbitrator is not required to apply the governing law. The arbitration process may may be either binding or non-binding. When arbitration is binding, the decision is final and can be enforced by a court and can only be appealed on very narrow grounds. When arbitration is non-binding, the arbitrator's award is advisory and can be final only if accepted by the parties. Okay. So shows like Judge Judy, all these sort of shows, is binding arbitration. And that's why they say at the start of Judge Judy, like, her decision is final. Like, it actually is legally binding. Ah, it actually is final. But the way that they find these cases, you know, if you get your case into a small claims court, there's one judge and there's, you know, three or four hundred cases that might show up on any given day. And so it's very hard, if not impossible, for one judge to get through those cases. So that's when they give you an arbitration. So with these shows, what they do is they go through cases that have been filed but haven't been heard in small claims court and they pick the juiciest sounding stories and then they find willing participants. So that sounds like a fun job, going through all that. (laughs) Yeah, like reading through people's shit, yeah. And so basically the shows pay for the flights, accommodation, and whatever financial settlement is agreed upon. So you were right in saying that last week, or whenever we talked about this, um, that they do pay for whatever decision the judge comes to. Defendant doesn't actually pay any of it. So the defendant has more incentive to go on there, even if they do end up looking like a C-U-N-T. Absolutely. I can't spell it out that time. I say it on the show. A cunt. <laughs> of course you're going to, if it means yeah. it's a chance to not pay it. Yeah, it's like you're already going to civil court, so it's sort of like yeah, here's this, we make it public but you don't actually have to pay it even if you lose and if you win, then you just prove to everyone that you're innocent, so really it's a win-win for you. Thinking of the question of is this positive? Oh yeah, I might get to that. (laughs) Just like wondering though, like unclogging a bit of the already crowded court docket. I can see how that could be a positive, so I'm interested to hear what else you have to say. Basic Judge Judy, People's Court. When you look at those compared to shows like Court TV, right? Because that's where they bring actual cameras into the courtroom. Mm -hmm. Like they are really televising cases. That's actually reality. So first of all, Judge Judy and People's Court are more like a game show than court TV. So they're they're staged representations of a courtroom. They're choreographed, curated hearings presented in a quick, easily consumable entertainment show format versus court TV, which is literally just live coverage of courtroom proceedings. Court TV is really dry. It's really tedious. It's not that sort of bam, 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 Mm -hmm. sandwich with jokes format that um, where people are from the punchline. So I read, I think it was an article actually, um, by Stephen Combe, and it was called The People's Law versus Judge Judy Justice. 
two models of law in American reality-based courtroom TV. Basically, he argues that the popularity of Judge Judy represents a shift in the way popular culture imagines the role of law in the lives of ordinary people. When you look at Judge Judy, it's like neoliberal notions of governance and individual self-responsibility for protection against risk. And if you look at people's court, it represents an older liberal legal model of law that emphasizes individual rights, public participation in the court process and due process. Judge Judy, I don't know if you know this, like even though people's court has been going for a lot longer than Judge Judy, Judge Judy is a hell of a lot more popular. So the supersession of Judge Judy justice Mm -hmm. over that of people's court indicates a shift in the way law is imagined in American popular culture and signals a wider shift in American and international attitudes towards the law in our everyday lives. Right. Looking at people's court and how it, it definitely was a lot drier in that sense. Like it wasn't as as attacking, I'll say, as Judge Judy can be. It was more focused on what had happened and how to sort of resolve it rather than like, you're a bad person, you did this thing wrong, you need to own up. Like, yeah, yeah it's a very different format. But I can see why people fucking watch Judge Judy because it's TV. Like, if you're not looking at it from a what's more ethically responsible, you know, it's like, what's better, like, a cheeseburger or a fucking celery stick? Everyone has their opinion, but I know what's more popular. Yeah. Like, I feel like an absolute knock for being like, oh, well, I could see how it's positive when I think of that because that's so right. Like, Judge Judy is all about personal attacks. And even if someone is maybe what would be, say, not really at fault for something, if Judge Judy deems them to be morally lacking she will go in on them well you're not supposed to do that oh yeah she'll fucking let them know one question i asked was why would people go on these programs like i wanted to figure that out and i was like well quite frankly like i'd argue money and attention are two of the best reasons to do anything ever but if we unpack it a little bit more in the context of the show and the types of people and their potential reasons for participating i'd guess that if you put the money aspect of it aside, which obviously is a huge draw, I'd suggest that refusing to accept responsibility Oof. or consequences yeah. and malignant narcissism would probably be pretty high on the list. So I read part of a book called Reality TV, Realism and Revelation by Anita Baresi. And chapter five was called Therapeutic Culture, Narcissism and Self-Revelation. And she talked about participants of arbitration-based reality programs. And I'm gonna read this quote, because it's fucking mwah. Their submission to the television gaze is symptomatic of a belief in the integrity of one's performance before camera to direct and rectify a false image of the self and to verify one's status as the victim. Which, like, yeah. And, you know, the more I thought about it, I was like, fuck, like, even the defendants in these shows want to be viewed as victims. That's why they go on there. Like, they're frequently counter-suing, because it's like, no, you're not the victim, I am the victim. Like. I'm actively being harmed. Yeah. Yeah. And they're in court in the first place because they fucking refuse to accept any wrongdoing. (laughs) Otherwise it would have been settled. Like they would never would have filed a civil suit in the first place. So that was interesting. The next thing I wanted to talk about was looking at these shows as a bit of a timeless microcosm. So I read a part of a book that was called Imagining Legality, Where Law Meets Popular Culture. And it was the chapter by Laurie Ouellette. And this quote, I'm going to read out here. Court programs avoid engagement with the broader social world outside the micro disputes on trial, making them timeless and suitable for perpetual reruns. Just like cops. Uh, So 
I thought, like, you know, how damaging is that on a cultural level? Mm -hmm. Like, the social cultural impact of syndicating reality is a pretty bizarre concept, and surely the legal system should be viewed as something that's dynamic and progressive. So how is it that watching reruns from the year 2000 of Big Brother seems weird, but Judge Judy is expected? If it's because the legal system doesn't change, then why the fuck doesn't it? Just from a little bit of the work that I've done at uni, it's commonly understood that it's sort of this cyclical thing, like law influences the media, but the media really influences the law and and public opinion and therefore the law. So Mm. it's kind of like, no wonder you can have these reruns. There might be like little technicalities that are different, right? Say like me watching that under arrest show, and they arrested that homeless guy. It's not like I'm living in a place where homeless people are no longer being targeted by police. So I'm not looking at it like, oh, that's a strange thing to do. Yeah. No, we're, we're still in that same space, even if it was fucking like filmed however many decades mm-hmm. ago. And that's really troubling. I, I never thought both, I guess, subgenres being so deliberately rerunnable, I guess. Yeah. Like, it, it makes you wonder how they can even fucking call themselves reality television when, like, it's not even fucking socially relevant fiction. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, it doesn't really reflect the times at all. Even, like, looking on YouTube for episodes of Judge Judy, I would look at the thumbnails and I would be like, okay, is this episode from last year or the year 2000? Like, you couldn't really tell. Like, even the fashions, it's almost like they've told people to dress a certain way, so that, like, in this ambiguous manner. Like, timeless, yeah. Timeless because it's already dated, like, in this really weird way. But anyway, like, yeah, looking at the entertainment versus education factor, like, how clear is the distinction in that? Because mm. if you're trying to educate yourself through watching these shows, you're not going to learn at <laughs> You're not going to learn very much, certainly not about how the legal system operates. And an example of that is looking at the behavior of the judges. There was an article in the Journal of American Arbitration that was called Cindy Court Justice, Judge Duty and Exploitation of Arbitration by Philip K. Zimbel. And he said, Judges in syndicate shows are not bound by rules of evidence, procedure, or even proper decorum. And he goes on to say, the more straight talking that a judge appears, which often means being as mean as possible to unlikable litigants, the better ratings he or she receives. Judge Judy Scheinlin is arguably the toughest of the syndicate judges. Consequently, she is also one with the highest ratings, the most famous reputation, and the biggest salary. Yes. He said, this is on actual courtroom judges. Judges have several checks upon how they do their job. All judicial proceedings must conform with the constitutional requirement of due process, which is the source of one's right to a fair trial. So, you know, obviously not on these fucking shows. Ratings are what's important. And also it's the principle. Like the winner of the case isn't necessarily the moral victor or the person who was more believable or who deserved to win, who had the best evidence to prove their case. It's whether... It's whatever will draw the best ratings. So another quote from this article was, while syndicate shows adhere to their own rules and function very differently than regular courtrooms, the general public does not know that they are not actual courtrooms, as they are designed to look like the public's notion of the appearance of a courtroom. Viewer misconception that these videotaped arbitrations are actual court cases can have extremely detrimental effects on the legal system. The danger is that the public perceives these shows as how trials are supposed to work, which in turn warps potential jurors' approach to acting as impartial triers of fact. Yeah, which, like, that's the biggest. And it's, like, not only does it affect 
how they would function as jurors, but also as fucking litigants, like as defendants, as plaintiffs. If you think that you're supposed to fucking back chat a judge, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. in regards to the expectations of, you know, what people expect of judges, there was an article called The Effect of Legal Television Shows on the Trial Process written by Alexandra Kukleko. (laughs) It was an honest thesis, sorry, not not an article. But the research showed that attorneys do believe television shows have impacted what a juror expects and in turn work to craft their presentations more like a television program. No. Yep. Motherfuckers. (laughs) Additionally, jurors who watch legal television shows more frequently are likely to believe the depictions on these shows are more accurate. Hey, yeah, yeah. Which is like to be expected like intellectually, I guess. Yeah. To hear that it's true is like, And and a craft, like, oh, and they're crafting their performance as attorneys inside the courtroom. They're not fighting the idea. That's how a courtroom is. Like, oh, they're perpetuating it. It makes me so mad. This is going to get worse for you. No. Um, (laughs) (laughs) So an article called Blame Judge Judy, The Effects of Syndicated Television Courtrooms on Jurors by Kimberly Podless. So it was research on the effects on those who serve on juries that are regular viewers of syndicate television programs by conducting a survey of people serving on juries. So this isn't potential jurors. This is people who are actually serving on juries. The results of the survey was comparing answers between those who are frequent viewers of syndicate shows and those who are not frequent viewers. And they're quite dramatically different in terms no, of the perceptions fuck. of what's appropriate judicial behavior. So I can give you some examples of some of the um, percentages that I found really shocking. So a judge should have an opinion about the outcome. What do you think? The, uh, I mean, once they've... <laughs> no, like, and this is like from, from the beginning of the case, like they should just have an opinion, like uh, 75% of frequent viewers said yes. No, 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 no. No. Well, non-frequent viewers, it was 48.6%. The next, which this should be pretty fucking obvious, the judge should make their opinion clear or obvious to the jury. No. Excuse me? (laughs) Frequent viewers, 76.5% said yes. What the fuck? Uh, Non-frequent viewers, 31.58. Still way too high, but at least it wasn't fucking majority. so mad. Asking them, will they try to discern the judge's opinion about the case? 74.5% of frequent viewers said yes. And it's actually really close. Like, it's the exact same percentage of non-frequent, uh, 31.58. That one's a tricky one, because I can understand why you would want to defer to someone who has been in a courtroom for longer than you, right? Yeah. I, I can maybe understand that a bit more. This is another one that's actually super interesting, and I think really reflects views of television court versus real-life court. The judge should frequently ask questions. That doesn't happen often no from my understanding yeah i mean i haven't been in court many times i've just been in family court when i got divorced but i can tell you the judge barely said a fucking word yeah 82.5 percent of frequent viewers said yes and 38.16 of non-frequent viewers i'm not a law expert by any stretch of the imagination but from my understanding maybe that would happen in like Britain, where they have a fact-finding judicial system rather than adversarial. That's just not how the American systems run. Yeah. The lawyers are the ones asking questions and doing the talking, not the judge. The judge Mm -hmm. is there to observe and to decide. Like... 
yeah and, and to like um, make sure everything stays within yeah above like, board like parameters yeah. And, yeah yeah this is maybe my favorite even though the percentage isn't quite as high the judge should be aggressive with litigants or express displeasure with testimony no 63.76 <laughs> percent of frequent viewers said yes is it funny when they do yes <laughs> should they probably not no. <laughs> and non-frequent was 26.32 so still way too high but the lowest yet so you know you would think it's common sense that would tell you that behavior like that would not create an environment that's appropriate for a forum that's supposed to facilitate justice and yet like here we are in regards to like you know is it helpful Here's an example of some real tangible damage that was caused by Judge Judy. So, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, her rulings are indeed final because they are legally binding. So if you want to argue a Judge Judy ruling, you have to actually take it to court. Right. So in BM versus DL, the family court of Kings County, New York, overturned part of a judge jury decision. The parties had appeared in front of Judge Judy over a dispute involving personal property. However, Judge Judy made a decision involving child custody and visitation. The court overturned the custody and visitation part of her decision on two grounds. First, it was a matter that was not covered by the agreement to arbitrate. Yeah. Second, as a matter of public policy, an arbitrator could not decide child custody and visitation no. rights. Considering that Judge Judy had been a judge in New York's family court it is particularly ironic that she decided to overstep her arbitral authority on this particular issue she would have known like what a fucking headache to make these people go to fucking court to overturn her ruling that like how fucking dare she though you know like why would you she gets her pay packet yeah that's it eh? and who's gonna take judge judy's like fucking bar license thingy away like no one's gonna do that so she knew i reckon she knew and she just did it anyway she doesn't yeah. fucking care. She doesn't give a shit. She's like, this would be good ratings. Absolutely. Like, she's just as much of a narcissist. Who cares about the child's well-being? Like, oh, she's the biggest fucking narcissist of all. How awful. Other than that very specific example, I made a little bit of an overview of reasons that these shows are not helpful. Firstly, it muddies the water on court proceedings and the appropriate decorum for inside a courtroom. Secondly, it could have serious consequences in a real trial scenario. Next, it caters to narcissism and the victim status of perpetrators of sometimes pretty damaging crimes and also doesn't provide consequences. Like, no money's forked out, no shame if you're a narcissist, it's just a free (laughs) fucking holiday. And it seems to encourage being a petty fuck because the more ridiculous that your case is, the more likely you are to be heard. The next point was that it creates class divisions even more. So the poor are uneducated, a sort of a spectacle or a sideshow. It elevates and celebrates rudeness and being unkind. It does. Also just the social and cultural impact of syndicating reality. Like I think that's a really bizarre concept in itself. And I don't think it's helpful either. And especially when it's not marketed and it's not like vintage Judge Judy, you know, it's just like Judge Judy. When's this? Yesterday? 20 years ago? I don't know. And it's based like, look how much we haven't progressed and look how stagnant we are culturally and attitudinally. And that's really depressing and bleak. That's not helpful. Like there's no fucking way that's helpful. So in summary, no, (laughs) no, these shows are not fucking helpful. And they're actually far more damaging than I thought I thought that they were damaging, but I think I didn't really think of the impact. Like, they're they're super helpful to the defendants, you know, helpful in 
uh, elevating their fucking narcissism, helpful in them not having to pay the money. And, you know, it, I suppose if you were a defendant and you were actually innocent, it would be very helpful because even if you did lose, there's no real loss. But yeah, there's also no consequences when you're guilty. And so it's not really, it's not preventing crimes. It's not stopping no. people from doing the wrong thing. There's no moral guidance. It's, yeah, it, it's really just bottom feeding bullshit. That's, that's my hot take. Out of those two forms of justice reality TV, are they helpful, yes or no, for each? And also, in terms of making a bracket, which one do you think is the most egregious out of the two? I don't think either of them are helpful. Absolutely not. It's really hard to say in terms of which is more damaging. I'm still going to say that cop-based ones are more egregious just because, at least with law, there is some level of help for some people like you said even like freeing up the legal system even if it's for shitty purposes at least it's something like they're making some kind of i'm sure there's some people that have benefited from it without hurting other people yeah like maybe one where they never would have had their money if it was going through a regular court even if that person didn't really say sorry they still got their money i honestly had no idea how awful these arbitration shows were. I thought they were annoying. <laughs> like, asinine, maybe? I'm beside myself. Shooketh. I was shooketh. <laughs> it's really upsetting. So obviously, no, neither are helpful. But when I try to think of what's worse, I say cops. Sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional here. But then I'm thinking of the long-term effects and the, the effects that we're never going to see how many people have been sent to prison? How many people have been, I don't know, a jury on a, a death row case whose opinions have been coloured by these shows? And that does cause harm. It's it's a it's yeah. an indirect harm, but yeah. it's still there. And we know from our previous episode on Capital Punishment that one out of nine people on death row are later found exonerated. And it's just like, again, you can't blame these shows for everything that's wrong with the justice systems, but to have observable impacts of arbitration shows on other cases is just really, really upsetting and haunting. Yeah, because you like to think that that's at least the last sort of checkpoint where they're getting it right. You know what I mean? It's like, well, even if the cops fuck it up, they'll get a fair trial or... And then to know that, like, we yeah, juries are just as fucking human and shitty as the rest of people. <laughs> I just don't like any of it, Kara. Don't like any of it. Yeah, because I think it's easy to think, like, oh, well, the, you know, the arbitration-based shows aren't covering criminal cases, but you're right, like, criminal cases have been, I'm sure, affected by people watching it. Thank you so much. You did a really good job of that and have sufficiently upset me with your I'm knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I've learned a lot. I feel like it has to be cops, right? Cops are who get people into at least the criminal system and the fact that people have died. Yeah, and they're the ones actually doing like the violence and the, the acts on the street sort of thing, like with those people that are directly affected, where I guess with the arbitration stuff, it's like, not that it's the same, but it kind of makes me think of like, blaming video game violence for violence you know what I mean like it's yeah, the sort of thing where it's like if yeah. people were just better fucking educated we wouldn't have this fucking issue or if they right. were better at jury selection like they vetted them better to test them on this shit if attorneys didn't play to those particular yes you know predispositions
Okay, so we'll say cop shows are worse. Mm-hmm. That's that's leading the the pack um, yeah. from these two. Yeah. So I guess we'll we'll find out next what's up next, and then what um where, where to go from there in our brackets. I have a feeling cops are just going to be the worst overall. Right. <laughs> I'm calling it early. No bias of our no. own. You know? <laughs> that's probably all we have for this episode. On our next full episode and part two of reality, we have property. Property. Yep property so one of us will be looking at shows like the block and renovating flipping shows and the other will be looking at sort of like buying home buying shows but until then you can catch us on twitter at a hill to die on pod you can like us on facebook at a hill to die on our website is a hill to die on pod.com our patreon if you want to become a patron an amazing gulk or higher is patreon.com slash a hill to die on pod our email address is hill to die on pod at gmail.com and our instagram account is a hill to die on pod so until we release the next full episode catch you later bye